There are any number of things you might have seen on the professional stage in the United States in the years between 1821 and, say, 1960. Fire jugglers, a dentist pulling teeth, a man singing songs with a duck. But do you know what you wouldn't ever have seen, ever? A black woman performing Shakespeare. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. In the new Cambridge Companion to Shakespeare and Race, Dr. Joyce Green MacDonald of the University of Kentucky has a chapter entitled Actresses of Color in Shakespearean Performance. To create it, she dug deep, deep into the history of professional theater in the United States to find everyone who fits the chapter's title. Every black woman who's been paid to perform or recite Shakespeare on stage in the United States. What she found is that between the year 1821 and the time when Joseph Papp first began staging Free Shakespeare in New York Central Park, there were exactly two women who fit that description. You'll hear about them in this podcast. And also the woman who Joe Papp cast as Volumnia, Helen, and the Princess of France. But that starting year, 1821, is important. That year, just as slavery was being abolished in New York, a company of actors put on the first known all-black professional theater production, the African company's now famous Richard III. Dr. MacDonald begins her chapter with a woman known only as Miss Welsh, who is likely the first black woman ever to be paid to perform Shakespeare on stage. Dr. McDonald joined us from a studio in Louisville to talk about Miss Welsh and all of the long-lost performers in a podcast we call Between You and the Women, the Play May Please. Dr. Joyce Green McDonald is interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Could we start with some background before we talk about these three women you've written about? In early American theater in the 19th century, just how rare was it to see black American actors, period? And and by that I mean ex-slaves or free blacks or black people from the Caribbean. One of the things that drew me to this project in the first place was that there's so much about it we don't know. We probably have a sense of slaves in some kinds of domestic entertainments, but not necessarily on informal stage productions. Um, That's why I became so interested in the African Grove Theater, because these were people who decided that they were going to put on a show, this group of black actors. Right. So this is really a murky and kind of a a blank slate. And and the earliest appearance Mm -hmm. by a black American woman that you found was of this Miss Welsh who played two roles in the African <laughs> Company's famous Richard III production in 1821. Yes. And before and we talk... And even there, there's a lot we don't know. Right. And before we talk about her, what do we know about the staging and the performances in this production of Richard III so we can picture it? I mean, there's a horribly racist newspaper review of it from the time mm-hmm. that I read, and I don't know what we can reliably take away from that. There is the sense that this was a proscenium stage, but we don't necessarily have a, I don't have a sense of how big it was. Um, The original plan was for black audience members to be seated down front in the best seats, but the shows became so popular that they had to have separate sections for white patrons. So it was an integrated crowd. 
but we I don't know a lot about the actual staging capacities that they were working with. Well, in terms of the performances, the review talks about the courting scene between Richard and Anne, and it quotes some dialogue, or at least it gives this white man's impression of the dialogue, again, an overtly racist kind of dialect. And so as you read what's there in this review, does it sound like they're actually doing Richard III, or were they doing one of those minstrel versions of Shakespeare that were common at the time? (laughs) What was really common is that you would see performances that wouldn't necessarily be a fully staged production of a whole text. It could well have been scenes from the play. The murkiness of the records I've been able to see for myself is one of the things I find so compelling about this. The only thing that shines through fully is that this group of black actors was determined to perform publicly set up this entertainment for the people in Lower Manhattan and to choose Shakespeare as one of the things they wanted to play. These hybrid Shakespeare performances were pretty wild. I mean, it it wasn't uncommon, for instance, to have like a, a straight Shakespeare performance and then afterwards, wasn't wouldn't there be a kind of a burlesque um, production? Frequently. Uh-huh. Yeah, I've I've talked to my students about this. It completely freaks them out because they, <laughs> they think that when we when we go to see Shakespeare, we're, we're very serious. It's kind of like being in church. And then all of a sudden, in this 19th century show, someone would come out maybe in a Hamlet-type costume, and then he would jump Jim Crow. Uh, that's a fascinating kind of contradiction. And it really talks, to me anyway, it really speaks about how race and performance of race becomes such a common cultural currency in this period that it crosses registers of high and low. Uh, It crosses class barriers between elevated people who might want to see a serious Shakespeare and less educated audience members who just wanted to go out for the evening and have some fun. In a way, it kind of knocks Shakespeare off his pedestal and claims him for this kind of wild racial anxiety and re-representation that was taking place in uh, New York in uh, the first decades of the 19th century. Okay, great. That, that nothing is, was sacred. That really sets the stage for this conversation. I'm really, that, that's really vivid. Thank you. Now, getting back to Miss Welsh... You didn't really know anything, anything uh, it sounds like, about her before <laughs> you started writing your article. No, and, I didn't even know she existed. Right. And the, and the review does give this one tiny piece of, uh, I don't even want to call it theater criticism, like uh, just uh, opinion regarding her performance. It talked about how she always danced on the stage instead of the pensive march of the afflicted queen. And maybe this is just one more example from the long history, as you were saying, of white reviewers not comprehending black performance. But what do you imagine she was doing that this critic saw it as dancing on the stage? Well, it's entirely possible that she comes onto the stage not necessarily dancing, but enraged. Now, it may be that this particular reviewer expected to see an actress be very pensive and solemn and sorrowful. And what he saw instead was this particular actress reading the role in a completely different way. And the review says also that she was a 
Miss Welsh is a chambermaid mm-hmm. to a family near Park Place. What does that tell you about how she might have come to be one of the first black women Shakespearean actors? Well, in those first couple of decades in lower Manhattan, where there were lots of black neighborhoods and where black working class people and white working class people and immigrants lived shoulder to shoulder, there was a a whole growth industry, you might say, of new cultural institutions for black people. William Brown, the founder of the African Company, started off uh, by starting up a place of entertainment for people to come uh, hear live music, dance. Uh, There's records of uh, black people and new white immigrants sort of showing each other's dances, learning dances from each other, which is this really cool moment of cultural mixture. Uh, So if this actress was attracted to William Brown's places of entertainment and later you know, was brought into this acting company, it's entirely possible that she was just a neighborhood person, somebody who came into one of these new institutions that was being built for black people to come together and express themselves. Wow. I mean, you really had to dig to resurrect and, and honor this Miss Welsh and these other women. I, I did want to try and honor them because there's so much energy here. There's so much determination. People are taking the opportunities for themselves. I think it's kind of wonderful, but it's also, again, many of the details are obscured to us now. Well, yeah, they were marginalized in in history. Yeah, in the first place. Yeah. How did you know where to look for the information that you're telling us? (laughs) Well, um, back when I was in graduate school, I uh, remembered there was a book that we were told that this is a place you want to go if you want to find out about early performances in the United States, especially in New York, book by G.C.D. O'Dell. I believe it's called Annals of the New York Stage. And so I was sitting around sort of at loose ends one day, and I, I picked it up and was looking around and also had a stack of other books about early black performance and found the playbook and also at the same time in one of the other resources I was looking at, found another scholar referring to this playbill. So that's just scant that information. She that's did what this. Yeah, that's what you found about um, this Richard the Third production. Where how did you know where to look to find out about these other women? How did you know where to find them? Um, Henrietta Vinton Davis was somebody I had heard about starting off as a, a little girl who was interested in acting and performance in Shakespeare from the time I was little. I had heard her name in connection with Frederick Douglass because her family apparently knew him. Once I remembered her name correctly and started looking, I was able to find some mentions of her performance, which is really kind of great. She was born to a family of free black people in Maryland. Uh, She had some, you know, pretty good degree of formal education. We know that she had advanced training in elocution. And we know that her family friend, Frederick Douglass, helped her to make her first stage appearances. This is Henrietta Vinton Davis, and she was a professional elocutionist, which was common then. And mm-hmm. But maybe you should remind us, what was it? Was it, was it, these recitals, were they entertainment? Was it educational? What was it supposed to be? Both? 
Um, I think they were a combination of both. What the elocutionists did was to recite set pieces, whether it was poems or speeches, and they would get out and perform these in front of an audience and try to bring out the true inner meaning of uh, the piece that they were reciting. And so the people in the audience would be elevated. So an evening might include a speech from a Shakespeare play. It might include comic songs, uh, all different kinds of things. But the elocutionist skill was in moving through all of these genres. It's really alien to a modern sensibility, but it was just really powerful. And you saw people like Charlotte Cushman, for instance, who made a, a huge career doing elocution as well as um, being in some full stage productions. Yes. We've talked about Charlotte Cushman on this podcast and uh, she's white. Now, Henrietta Vinton Davis, a black American woman, was doing this at such a fraught time, though. I mean, this really Mm -hmm. a period of terror as Reconstruction was was rolled back in the South. And here she was daring to go on stage and to perform in this elevated way. I mean, it must have meant a lot mm-hmm. to her her audiences, to her black audiences, yeah. to see a woman like that up on stage. You're exactly right. I think that's one of the things I find so compelling about her story. She was She was meant to be a performer. She was meant to be an actress. And despite this reimposition of racial terror, she was going to be on stage as a black actress speaking to largely black audiences, although not exclusively black audiences. And she was going to be up there proclaiming her stature as a creative artist and showing people, you know, this is who black people really are. This is what we're really capable of. Her determination to perform and finally to take control of her own career by helping to co-write a play and working in full, st- full-length full stage plays outside Shakespeare, I found it very moving. And this original play w- that she wrote, what was it like? Yeah. Um, yeah, the play is called Our Old Kentucky Home. And I'm, I am a Kentuckian. I, I live in Louisville. And so um, the title jumped out at me. Unfortunately, this play has not been printed. Um, I did read a, a digest of it. And it's about a mixed-race slave woman named Clotilde, who is going to be sold, obviously, as a sex slave for the wealthy white men who come to this slave auction. But she escapes, and she helps to liberate her lover, who is also a slave who has escaped and gone to fight for the Union Army during the Civil War. She helps him escape from a Confederate prison camp. They end up emancipated, And they go back home to Kentucky and buy the old plantation where they had both formerly been enslaved. The role that she took for herself is Clotilde, this woman who defied the kinds of definitions that had been put on her. It's a story that really yearns toward the kind of self-definition that black people, maybe especially black women, were declaring for themselves in the midst of a public atmosphere, of course, that denied that they were capable. Wow. Intense. That must have been amazing. How did the play do? Uh, It went pretty well. But she had to give up acting, uh, didn't she? Well, I don't think she necessarily had to. I think she decided to because the kinds of opportunities that she wanted for herself on the stage 
weren't there. Uh, she eventually left the stage altogether, and she didn't just retire from the stage. She went into politics that were aimed at changing the conditions under which black people lived and changing the ways in which black people saw themselves. So I think what happened to her is that her work on the stage started seeming less relevant. You also found uh, this other Shakespeare performer, Adrian McNeil Herndon, who uh, she also uh, was the first black woman on the faculty at, at Atlanta University. So really impressive yeah. career. She played yeah. Cleopatra in 1904. Uh, <laughs> again, it wasn't a full on production. Well, uh, you write that she did this impersonation of an entire play. So so a one-woman show of sorts? Yes. With all of these different roles, obviously the script that she was working from seemed like it had been edited down. Uh, but she performed all of these different parts um, during this evening's entertainment, which sounds really extraordinary, but again, sounds completely alien to anything we might expect to see on a stage now. We would think it was um, some kind of a, of a stunt but um, what she's doing is reciting the different characters' speeches and, you know, giving the impression of the play. She had a really interesting life. She was uh, very light-skinned, and it seems like she tried to lead a double life, uh, one as a Creole yeah. Shakespearean elocutionist in the northeast of the country and then as a black female professor in Atlanta. Did she pull it off? Mm-hmm. No, no, she uh, ultimately she did not pull it off. And you might imagine that this is something that pretty much couldn't be pulled off. Well, I don't know. Back then there was no Internet. So, <laughs> so there well, <there's>, <laughs> right? that's true. And it might have been might have been more difficult to travel from Atlanta to the Northeast, you know, so people would know. But there was always someone who knew she had been to drama school in Boston and New York and her husband Alonzo Herndon, who had been born into slavery and yet after emancipation had become uh, the city's first black millionaire, was the one who paid her school bills. So I suspect that the people at her drama schools knew. The fact that she thought that she could do this, uh, I can't quite grasp what her thinking was. But... um, after that first extraordinary performance in Cleopatra in Boston, bookings dried up almost immediately. And that is what leads me to suspect that somebody knew what was going on. And the first, uh, the next year after that Cleopatra performance and the lack of bookings that followed it, that was when she directed her first of uh, what would become an annual Shakespeare play production at AU. Um, one of the things that has been occurring to me since I've been thinking about the careers of these two actresses is that I think that there's a significance that's attached to the fact that both of them were light-skinned black women. The secret that people did not want to address, did not want to talk about, was the consequences of slave rape, that there were a whole lot of light-skinned black people uh, walking around all over all over the country who were here because their enslaved mothers had been raped by white men. Their very existence in some ways confronted and exposed racial secrets that people did not even want to admit that they were keeping. 
I'm thinking of of Trevor Noah in his memoir, uh, describing himself as the living. I was evidence. born a crime. Yeah, living of evidence a crime. crime. Born a crime. Um, on the other hand, if these actresses had had darker skin, would they have been? That accepted? wouldn't worked either. No, no, right? No, not at all. Um, I mean, you can see evidence of that in in current internet controversies over casting of black actresses in movies Mm -hmm. and in the ways that we represent black women, especially perhaps um, uh, for public consumption, that there's something that's still unwelcome about seeing dark-skinned black women. Well, getting back to Adrian McNeil Herndon and her later career, you quote from an article that she wrote in an academic journal about black performance of Shakespeare and young people. What did she see as the benefits of it for students, for young people performing Shakespeare? Well, first of all, she felt that it was completely natural and normal for black people to become Shakespearean actors because she says this is the greatest dramatist in the first place, she says. But then you look at the lives that black people in America have led and the the scope, the magnitude of black people's experiences in America had something Shakespearean about it, in her view. When you look at the extent to which black Americans had lived and suffered and striven, um, she says they were, were sort of naturals for uh, Shakespearean performance, that there wasn't anything incongruous about black people being Shakespeareans, that it kind of made sense because their lives brought them to the the scope and the size of Shakespearean uh, situations very naturally. I love that, um, that and she yet claims same... Shakespeare for her, her race, the dignity in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, very seriously. You know, and she wanted, I think, a Shakespeare career for herself, but it was not to be, and she put her energies instead into her students. She said, um, I think another remark about um, black people's natural presence, that they didn't necessarily need um, you know, formal academic or dramatic training, that their natural expressiveness was enough for these roles and that you know, really suited them. Um, and I always, I, I look at that and I wonder if that's a place where we can see her judging the time and energy that she put into her own training, you know, the, the training that came to nothing, you know, and now that she's putting her Shakespearean energy into this other direction, teaching and coaching her students, I wonder if it didn't in some way start seeming irrelevant or like a waste. The kind of career she'd wanted for herself is very different from the Shakespearean that she became there in Atlanta as a teacher. Sure, and maybe she sees, like most teachers, that, you know, the future, that in the future, there will be more of a future for her students. Well, maybe she was, and she was obviously yeah. before her, a little bit before her time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's Jane White, who you also uh, write about, and she performed Shakespeare in New York in the 1950s, so we're jumping ahead. And uh, she also had a lighter skin color, and it seemed to cause her some uh, casting problems. Yeah. Um, She said that sometimes she was considered to be not white enough for some parts, and sometimes she was considered to be too black for others. You know, and and both of these were obviously painful 
Yeah, you get it coming and going. And recognized. That seems a very modern problem, I would think. Mm -hmm. One thing that jumped out at me from an interview with her, a newspaper interview I read with her, she started out her theatrical career at the same time as Geraldine Page. Um, And Geraldine Page made good progress and was, was getting big star parts on Broadway and eventually moving into the movies while uh, Jane White uh, said, you know, that she was stuck playing what they called exotics, mm-hmm. Polynesians, Mexicans, uh, that she could never just be on stage as a character and that uh, her race in some ways blocked and impeded her career. But she was a beneficiary of, I think, of being in the right place at the right time. Being in New York in um, early to mid-60s, where the theatrical scene was starting to become newly animated with commitments to theater that suited and expressed the energies of this uh, multicultural, multilingual world capital. And so when she's cast in public theater performances uh, of Shakespeare by Joseph Papp. Right. He saw her on Broadway, right? And then cast her in a lot of Shakespeare yeah. roles at the yeah, public. Yeah, and then started casting her, yeah. But she only got that part in Once Upon a Mattress, which was the show that started Carol Burnett's career. She only got that part because even though they loved her and her first auditions, the staff was saying, you know, there's something that's not quite right. And so she says, is it that you think I'm too dark? You know, and they said, yeah, that, yeah, that's it. We just don't think you'd fit. So she put powder on herself, like pale powder on herself to make her skin look white and just apparently did the audition over again. And they said, okay, yeah, this will work. That's really... Which is really kind of crazy. But, you know, that's what she had to do. Yeah, and uh, luckily, Joe Papp saw her and then he cast her, as I said, in in all these Shakespeare roles. But it sounds like she wasn't that interested in Shakespeare. I don't get the sense that she wanted to play Shakespeare more than she wanted to play anything else. I don't think that she was committed, as committed to Shakespeare as Davis or Herndon were. Um, I think what she wanted instead was just to be able to act. And it's kind of funny because her father, Walter White, uh, executive director of the NAACP for much of his career, was a black man who was so light-skinned that he went undercover as a white man in the Deep South to collect information about lynchings. But, you know, and here is his daughter, who's living a very different kind of life, but the color of her skin creates a different set of complications for her. Wow. I'm still thinking about her putting the powder on and re-auditioning. And we've kind of skipped over, I mean, you've talked about it here and there, but we've kind of skipped over just how much these three women had to overcome just to step onto a stage. Maybe you could lay out for us those roadblocks and the hurdles uh, that stood in the way of them performing Shakespeare. Yeah, uh, for Davis and Herndon, um, they lived in, you know, built their careers during a period of extreme racial reaction after the failure of Reconstruction. And they were basically living under um, this this anti-black racist terror while they were trying to establish not only careers for themselves, but to build a personal life, to have roots and connections to other people. And so every time, really, that they 
tried to step onto a stage, they were doing something that was uh, considered inappropriate. And yet they did it anyway. What Adrian McNeil wanted to do was to build a life that vindicated, I think, her uh, ability as a black woman to be intelligent, to be a good wife, to build a home, to be a mother, all the things that were considered beyond black women's capacity as they had been described as being debased and animalistic in the definitions that arose from slavery. Uh, That's why it was so painful for her, I think, after the, um, the, well, they call them the Atlanta race riots of... uh, 1906, I believe, Uh, she said that she felt that her home had been violated and attacked, that there was no place that a black woman could live in dignity and in domestic love that was safe from the depredations of uh, what she called the Southern white man. Um, And so going back home to Atlanta and building her career at Atlanta University, nurturing those black students, I think, is a way to offer a a refutation of those imposed definitions of black people's um, low capacities for culture. It's What's really tragic about her story is that she died when she was very young. She was only 40. And yet um, the tradition she started there at Atlanta University really uh, continued, spread to other black colleges in the Atlanta area, and finally uh, began another really strong tradition of Shakespeare performance in uh, historically black colleges and universities. Well, that leads me to my last question, which is you started out looking to honor these people, not knowing anything about what you'd find, pretty much, or not knowing anything about these three women. What, coming out the other end after doing this research, have you discovered about the com- their commonality or the, the through line uh, among the three? Or what have, what have you taken away personally? Well, I think the through line is their will to self-expression, whether it's in, you know, Shakespearean performance or in their right to perform and be considered creative vessels capable of communicating these dramatic meanings, taking on a wide range of roles as we see in something like uh, an elocutionary performance, being able to rise beyond the negative valences that people attach to their black bodies on stage, to claim that creative capacity despite what people said about their ability to communicate artistic meaning, their determination to do that, especially the determination of uh, Henrietta Vinton Davis and uh, Adrian McNeil Herndon is really powerful and um, really inspiring. Well, I can't wait to find out what you find out and uh, to talk to you about <laughs> it then. And I really enjoyed talking with you today. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Joyce Green McDonald is an associate professor of English in the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Kentucky and a trustee of the Shakespeare Association of America. Her new book, Shakespearean Adaptation, Race and Memory in the New World, has just been published by Palgrave Macmillan. 
In the Cambridge Companion to Shakespeare and Race, Dr. MacDonald wrote the chapter titled Actresses of Color in Shakespearean Performance, The Question of Reception. She was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. The Cambridge Companion to Shakespeare and Race was published by Cambridge University Press and became available in the United States in February of 2021. Our podcast, Between You and the Women, the Play May Please, was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer, with help from Leonor Fernandez. We had technical help from Andrew Feliciano and Evan Marquardt at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California, and Nick Stevens and Caleb Songer at Downtown Recording in Louisville, Kentucky. If you've been enjoying Shakespeare Unlimited, I hope you will consider reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. It helps us get the word out to people who haven't heard it and people who might enjoy it. We really appreciate your help. Thanks. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find out more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.